How can we as healthcare practitioners move from just providing disease management to providing true healthcare? That is the question, and this is the answer. Welcome to Reinvent Healthcare, the podcast that helps you grow your practice and expand your skills as a practitioner. I'm Dr. Rita Marie Loscalzo. Let's dive in. Welcome back to Reinvent Healthcare, the podcast for wellness-minded people and professionals who are passionate about transforming our broken healthcare system. I believe that most diseases can be prevented or reversed, and I'm dedicated to empowering millions of people to go from disease and dysfunction into living the healthiest life possible. And my favorite way to do that is through training practitioners like you who are dedicated to the same ends, and I want you to have the best skills ever. So let's start with what are we going to cover today? So today we're going to be looking at metabolic health and finding what we call the metabolic sweet spot. We all know that the sweet spot, finding that spot, that perfect alignment spot is used in a lot of ways, whether it be related to business, whether it would be related to sports, but the sweet spot is a well-known entity. But what does that mean? when it comes to metabolic health. That's what we're going to be exploring today. So right now, people are coming to you with lots of problems like belly fat, you know, that's just a little roll around the middle that won't go away, or over overt obesity, chronic fatigue, brain fog, mood swings, and even memory loss. And when we look at these challenges, we have to put the right things in place to help people. We can't just have a protocol for fatigue because some people's fatigue might be related to blood sugar imbalance. Some people's fatigue might be related to gut dysbiosis. Some might be related to neurotransmitter imbalance. Some might be thyroid health, mitochondrial health, and on and on. So we need to be able to treat each person as an individual and people are trying to get through this stuff and not really getting good answers. So when we look at modern medicine, when we look at the pill for an ill, the this for that approach to healthcare, I believe that it's kind of like taking the battery out of the smoke detector in the middle of the night when it goes off, rather than looking for the root cause. And we all know that if we do that in the house, we run the risk of the house burning down. But when we do this in the body by taking drugs to mask the symptoms or doing surgical procedures or other things that are not getting to the root cause, people are suffering. And I see it day in and day out, and it breaks my heart. So let's talk about metabolic health and how that is so, so important for you getting success with helping people to feel better, not just in the moment, not just with symptom management, but long-term, long-term as an approach to avoiding the chronic health conditions that are plaguing our society and the lethal ones as well. So there was a survey that was done between 2006 and 2016, and it was published in the Metabolic Syndrome and Related Disorders Journal, a prestigious medical journal, and it was published by the University of North Carolina. And they determined that 88% of the population was metabolically unwell. Fast forward to some time later, after we've gone through two years of the pandemic, what happened? They redid the survey. They determined that now in 2022, which is two years ago already, 
in the spring is when they did, I think it was around April, that 93% of the population is metabolically unwell. And I want you to sit with that for a moment. I want you to think about that for a moment. What does it mean if 93% of the population is unwell? And we'll talk about what that means to be metabolically unwell, but that's really huge, which means it's, it's probably a bigger epidemic than the pandemic that we dealt with where everybody freaked out. This is the true epidemic. So what do I mean by metabolic unwellness? What does it mean to be metabolically well or unwell? Well, in the study, they defined metabolic unwellness, people not being well metabolically, as waist circumference bigger than 40 inches for a men and for 34 inches for females, fasting glucose over 100, and hemoglobin A1c greater than 5.7. Now, they didn't define that you had to have all of these. You just had to have one or more of these. And we'll talk about what metabolic wellness really is and how you can help your clients achieve it and what that means not only to their satisfaction with their health today, but with their long-term mortality and morbidity rates. So let's look at why. <laughs> why are people, why are 93% of the population, why are they unwell metabolically? It's because of their diet and lifestyle. The diet is such that the average person in the U.S. eats about 150 pounds of sugar a year. And that's in the form of pure sugar and maple syrup and cane sugar and all this. But sugar is a huge component of the American diet. And there were some studies done in Australia, same thing. In fact, they had higher intake, right? It's like 22 to 30 tables, teaspoons a day. And that's crazy because I know that you guys are out there trying to help people get well. You're probably not eating 150 pounds of sugar every year. I'm certainly not. So some other people are getting our share. And what does that do? It creates a state of insulin resistance, right? We know that insulin is the hormone produced by the pancreas that helps sugar get from the bloodstream into the cells. And we know that digestively, when you eat foods that have carbohydrate in them, they get broken down and eventually there's sugar that gets into the bloodstream. Is sugar supposed to be in the bloodstream? Well, the purpose of sugar in the bloodstream is to get it into the cells so the mitochondria can make energy. Combined with oxygen and glucose, the mitochondria can go through the Krebs cycle and create ATP at the end of that cycle. And this is what we need to be healthy. This is what everybody needs for their immune systems to be healthy, for gut to be healthy, for thyroid, for all their organs and glands, for the muscles to be healthy and be able to supply us with the, the stamina to be able to move things. So insulin resistance is a big part of metabolic unwellness. What happens is, you know this, most likely that over time, that intake of sugar, that 150 pounds a year, plus the breads and the pastas and all the other stuff that people consume are causing a flood of glucose in the blood that the insulin just can't really handle. The cells can't handle. The insulin's trying to get it into the cells, but the cells get gummed up. The receptors have a problem and we end up with insulin resistance. And so the insulin can't get that sugar from the bloodstream and into the cells adequately. So why does this happen? Well, there's too much 
sugar. And the cells are saying, enough, 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 cover my ears, don't put any more in. But then what happens with the insulin resistance is that the insulin is charged by the pancreas. Come on, get rid of this glucose, lower the glucose, and it can't get it into the cells but the fat cells don't become insulin resistant. It'd be nice if they did, but they don't. So all of that sugar goes into the fat cells and we get overweight. We get more weight on us, even if we seem to be eating the right number of calories. And this is a problem. This is a serious, serious problem that you need to know how to address as a practitioner. And most medical doctors don't, I'm sorry to say, because you're not taught this in medical school. We're taught why is blood sugar important? Well, we want to prevent somebody from getting diabetes. And so unless those blood sugar readings are in the area, in the realm, in the range of what we consider diabetic, nobody's caught. We're not catching this early enough to prevent problems. Too much sugar in the blood leads to the complications we know are part of diabetes. It could be blindness, diabetic retinopathy. It could be kidney problems. It's nephropathy. It can be neuropathies in the fingers. It can be stiffening of the artery walls, leading to heart attack, stroke, and hypertension. Right? It can also be a contributing factor to increased C-reactive protein which can add to the burden on the body and cause problems in it with inflammation throughout and contribute to heart disease. So this is a problem you need to be able to address. Rather than looking at, oh, this person has, I don't know, sex hormone imbalances and let's address the sex hormones, you got to go deeper because most of these problems that you're going to see in practice have as a root a problem with insulin resistance. But if they're not at the point where medicine can tell you that they have insulin resistance because the blood sugar fasting isn't over 100, they're in a state of pre-insulin resistance. That's a term I coined to describe what I was seeing in over 30 years of clinical practice, that people were on the way to all these diabetic complications. They hadn't even been diagnosed yet. So one of the most important things you can do for your clients is to get them to stabilize in their blood sugar. So how do we do that? Well, you need to learn to test foods. They, you have to teach them how to test their foods so you can personalize their menu. You need to help them keep blood sugars in a safe range. And what is that? Well, I think from all the research I've done over the last 30 plus years, that a safe range for glucose is in the 80s, the low 80s. It could be in the 70s or 60s even, just depends on the person. But in the low 80s, it shouldn't be creeping up above 80s. So if you've got somebody who's consistently showing a fasting glucose of in the 90s, they are in that pre-insulin resistance state. And there were some studies that showed that if we have a blood sugar, a fasting blood sugar over 90, we're increasing the risk of cardiovascular disease. And the higher it goes, the more the risk. But medicine hasn't caught up, right? We're just waiting for somebody to become diabetic. And that's unsafe. The other thing that they're not measuring is postprandial glucose, meaning what happens after they eat a meal, not just two hours later, because in diabetic circles, people are told, test your glucose after two hours, and if it's 140 or below, you're good. No, no, we shouldn't get to 140. 
I have found lots of research on this that shows that we really don't want to go above 110 or at most 120 at the peak, not at two hours. By two hours, the glucose should have come down. The glucose follows a pattern. You know, it goes up and the insulin comes in and brings it back down, comes down. That peak usually is at between a half an hour and an hour. Two hours later, it should be back down to baseline in someone who's metabolically well. Well, that's only what? 7% of the population that's considered even in the realm of metabolic wellness. So we want to keep it in a safe range. There's studies I have that show that when the blood sugar goes above 120, we're starting to get damage to the retinas. We're starting to get damage to the peripheral nerves. Do you want to put people at risk by allowing them to go that far? No possible way. So you want to help people to establish blood sugar balancing lifestyle habits. So what are those? Well, they need to have balanced nutrition, right? They have to have good levels of nutrients that help support that insulin receptors to take in that sugar, but they also have to be avoiding foods and nutrients and anti-nutrients, like things that are damaging the cells, hydrogenated oils, for example. You want to help people to get off of these things. We need to help them have consistent movement. This doesn't mean that you have to have people out there training for a marathon or a half marathon or even running at all. They need to be doing consistent movement. And burst training is one of my favorites. And something else called faster size is a favorite because it's just short bursts of movement that have been found to be super effective in helping people get their blood sugars and insulin levels under control. There's also, guess what? Sleep. Sleep is super important and so many people are not sleeping because they're staying up late, they have all the electronics, their houses are full of EMFs, um, and because they have metabolic imbalances. So they have a hard time falling asleep and that contributes to the stress piece, which raises the cortisol. And when the cortisol goes up, not only does the blood sugar go up because cortisol going up is supposed to be helping us escape from hungry tigers, but we have a hard time falling asleep. So if you have people who are consistently having a hard time falling asleep, you may find that their blood sugars are higher. If they get a good night's sleep, they're going to have good blood sugar the next day. Lots of studies show that even one bad night of sleep in an otherwise healthy person can lead to insulin resistance the next day. If it's just once every now and then, it's temporary insulin resistance. But think about the people you work with. Think about you. Think about your own loved ones. Are they all getting enough sleep? And a lot of them are laying awake trying to fall asleep, but they're worrying about the day, which leads to the next one, which is stress. Getting stress under control is super important because like I just said, cortisol causes an increase in glucose. And when we have an increase in glucose, over time, we get the receptor burnout. And I've seen this happen in myself and lots of patients. I call it the candy bar eating effect of cortisol. What does that mean? Well, your sugars go up as much as if you ate a candy bar, but you don't get the pleasure of doing that. So really important that the sleep and stress get accounted for and the movement. But the other one that everybody overlooks is the optimal timing. We live in a society where food's available 24-7. We can go to the grocery store. We can go to the overnight market. We can go to our refrigerators usually and eat any time of day. 
And that's not how the human body was evolved to perform. So when we don't have adequate spacing between the meals, we never have a chance for insulin levels to go down to baseline. We never have a chance for our guts to actually stimulate the movement, the uh, migrating motor complex, for example, to move everything along. All of this stuff disrupts metabolic health. And you might be thinking, well, what do I do about it? I know a lot of this stuff, but I don't really know what to do. Do a 30-day metabolic reset. What's a 30-day metabolic reset? It's a period of 30 days where you're guiding people to do everything they can to keep their insulin levels low, their blood sugar levels low. And how do we do that? Well, we have to do some testing before that. We have to learn how to test them and when I first started doing glucose testing with people, everybody thought I was crazy. Like, are your patients all diabetic? My colleagues would ask. No, but it's important for everybody to know how food, how stress, how activities affect their glucose levels. So there's a couple of ways you can do it. You can do it with a, a glucometer where you they prick their finger and they get the blood sugar reading, but you have to have them do it at certain intervals. And we teach that to people in our sweet spot program. We teach that to practitioners in our insulin resistance practitioner training. You teach them how to do that. My favorite meter actually is the Keto Mojo because it has the ketones. You can also test the ketones and you can see if this person is metabolically flexible and can burn ketones in the absence of glucose for fuel. So the other thing that I love, I've been using them for over five years with myself and with my clients, are CGMs, Continuous Glucose Monitors. And we have a whole podcast episode talking about CGMs and the various ones. So I highly recommend you go back and listen to that and um, you know learn how do you use that in your practice to help people get their metabolic health under control. So there's CGMs, there's the Dexcom. Um, there's the, the Abbott Freestyle Libre. And I, like I said, go listen to the other podcast episode in this series. So I always ask people, would you like to know your metabolic health score? We created a quiz that has questions that they can answer and it will give us the, um, the score basically. Where do they sit? Are they far gone? Are they doing well? Are they moving in the direction? So it's basically, uh, we'll put the link in the show notes. It's at drreadamarie.com slash quiz. So now that we've talked about metabolic unwellness and we've talked about the, the connection with blood sugar, let's just define what, what metabolic wellness was defined at in the study that we're talking about where it said 93% are unwell. Well, the waist circumference should be under 40 for men and less than 34 for women. The fasting glucose needs to be less than 100 and the hemoglobin A1C needs to be less than 5.7. All of these need to be happening for someone to be defined as metabolically well. And only 7% fit that bill as of 2022. And I take it a step further. I call it optimal metabolic wellness is waist circumference less than 35 for men, less than 30 for women, fasting glucose less than 85, hemoglobin A1C less than 5.2, and they don't have any diagnoses on their plate. If you went to their doctor and they have a clean bill of health, they don't have Hashimoto's, they don't have, um, I don't know, ulcerative colitis, they don't have reflux, they're metabolically well when they are no diagnosed conditions, optimally metabolically well. And then they're feeling energetic and vibrant most of the time, right? Most people will not say to you that they feel energetic and vibrant most of the time. 
So what do we need? What do you need to do to help protect your clients and restore their metabolic health? You need to get them in a state of metabolic flexibility, the ability to shift freely from burning glucose to burning ketones for fuel. You need to have healthy mitochondria. So you need to evaluate mitochondrial function. There's a number of ways you can do it. You can do it from a detailed history. You can do it from some tests. You can do like organic acid tests or uh, the uh, NutriVal test or the metabolomics test, and that shows you how well it's functioning. But oftentimes, a history tells you a lot and tells you whether they're producing enough ATP. And when we look at those tests, though, we can look at the cycles. And then they need to have sensitivity of the of the muscles, the liver, and other body parts, and actually also resistance at the fat cell level. Here's a scary part about insulin resistance. Cancer cells have 10 times more insulin receptors than healthy cells. And so if someone's eating in such a way that their blood sugar goes up, guess who's going to gobble up the sugar? Not the healthy cells that need it. It's the cancerous cells. And then they grow and they get out of control. So let's talk a little bit about insulin. There are some tests that, that you should be doing, right? You should be testing, yeah, test their fasting glucose test their hemoglobin A1C, but you should also be testing their their fasting insulin. And what I hear from my clients and patients and people in my classes is that, well, their doctor doesn't believe in testing insulin. And I'm like, where does belief come in to this? This is a scientific measurement of a hormone in the body that when out of control is hurting people. So I don't think it's a matter of belief. I think it's a matter of Every adult should have their insulin, their fasting insulin tested at one point in time, depending on where it shows, depending on their health history, depending on their family history, maybe more often than that. And we watch it. And guess what? The number should be between two and five, not all the way up to 19, like a lot of the labs say. So, you know, insulin's great because it opens the gates and lets the glucose come into the cells. We need it. But it's also an anabolic hormone. And if we have resistance, it's going to store fat and it's going to stop. It's going to put the brakes on the breakdown of fat. It's considered the number one fat storage hormone. So what happens if people have excess insulin? There's a lot that happens. Obviously, diabetes can happen, type 2 diabetes. Alzheimer's can happen. We're finding that they're calling Alzheimer's type 3 diabetes or insulin resistance in the brain cardiovascular disease. It stiffens the walls of the arteries so that when someone's trying to run away from a tiger, it's tight. It can't open and relax and open. It can't do that. And that can lead to heart attack strokes or other kinds of clotting disorders. It can obviously lead to cardiovascular disease because I just preempted that. It can lead to cancer. And I said, because the cancer cells are not going to get resistant to insulin. So they're going to gobble up all the sugar, grow out of control. Autoimmune and inflammation. We we see a lot of connection between C-reactive protein, HSC reactive protein, and the um, insulin resistance. Uh, Blindness. We have at, at, whenever the glucose goes above 120, we're having a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more damage to the retinas in the eyes. Um, Neuropathy and the bad complications of excess insulin and insulin resistance and diabetes are what I call blindness, amputation, and dialysis because it also affects the kidneys. And that's where the dialysis comes in. 
it affects thyroid function because excess insulin affects the thyroid receptors on the cells. So we can get thyroid hormone resistance. Also affects the gut. It can cause damage to the gut. It can disrupt the microbiome and sexual impairment. These are all serious issues that can result from excess insulin. Insulin resistance doesn't start when your blood sugar goes above 110. Insulin resistance and blood sugar dysregulation starts decades before that. Starts with too much insulin being produced, but you know, because we're young and no problem, too much insulin, but then we start to get low levels of glucose in the blood and people get reactive hypoglycemia. And then the stage where most of the people I see are, I mean, a lot of them are beyond it, but are pre-insulin resistance. The blood sugar is still hovering down there in the 90s. Doctors aren't picking it up. They're not testing insulin or hemoglobin A1C, so they don't really know what's going on. They're not looking at HSCRP and some of the other inflammatory markers. So you just, you're fine. Everything's fine. Then we get into overt insulin resistance, diagnosable, ICD-9 code, and that's where the glucose goes above 100. Well, once they're in that stage, they start to develop the cardiovascular implications. They start to get lipid dysregulation. And then we say they have metabolic syndrome. And finally, once that glucose is in the 120s, we call it diabetes. But it's not a short-term thing. It could be 30 years or more from the onset, from the first way we can detect it. So what if we started testing everybody, like from the age of 18 on, right, when they start to get their own adult blood tests, if we started testing them then, we would catch a whole lot more people and I bet the rate of death from diabetes, stroke, heart disease would plummet and cancer as well. So it's interesting to note that the symptoms of being hungry after a meal and being irritable and cranky if you miss a meal and having fatigue and the little extra belly fat, some of those symptoms we talked about earlier in this presentation, they're really just the tip of the iceberg. And that's what's scary because what can be happening underneath while all those changes are happening on the outside, which are just annoying symptoms, according to medicine, and according to people sometimes too, because they don't know better. But we're seeing clots build up in the arteries. We're seeing cancer cells grow in the lungs and other parts of the body. And we're seeing damage to the brain. Alzheimer's is now considered to be caused by insulin resistance in the brain. We have memory loss. Alzheimer's is one of those diseases that people just, they don't want to get, right? They'd rather get cancer and die than have Alzheimer's because you lose your life. You lose your ability to relate to people that you love. And it's heartbreaking for you, for the person who has it, but it's heartbreaking for the loved ones as well. So, you know, there's a lot of complications of diabetes and you should be looking out for people before they get there so they don't end up with these complications. So the tests that you should be running on people who have belly fat and brain fog and memory loss and cranky and irritable, hungry after they eat a big meal, are the following. One is the typical fasting glucose. That's a good one to run. You have to get that. Number two, hemoglobin A1C. How sticky and coated with glucose are the red blood cells? And that's a measure, an indirect measure of the average glucose over the course of the last three months. And then third is insulin, fasting insulin. 
There are specific conditions under which you would want to do a postprandial insulin, after meal insulin, but that is, um, you know, after you've gotten the fasting, and we go into major detail about that in our sweet spot program and in our insulin resistance practitioner training. So when you're mapping postprandial glucose, you should be testing it between a half an hour and an hour after the meal. I like to test more frequently than that. I also like to use the CGMs to see what's the peak. The peak after eating should not be going above 110. 120 at the most. You should also be testing inflammatory markers like C-reactive protein and erythrocyte sedimentation rate and homocysteine because these are clues that there's something out of balance. Why do people get insulin resistance or pre-insulin resistance or diabetes for that matter? A lot of folks want to blame their genes. My mom had it. My grandmother had it. But it's more than that. The genes are just like a little bit in there, like 5% of the risk factor. The other things that contribute are inadequate nutrition and overnutrition, eating too much, too much sugar, too much carb, stress, lack of exercise, and poor sleep. And eating all day long and not having a break between meals. As I mentioned earlier, in the US alone, that people who are adults are tending to eat the equivalent of a dumpster full of sugar a year, 150 pounds. Kids are actually eating more than adults. They're eating more like 30 teaspoons a day, whereas adults are doing less. You got to look at this. You got to look at their diet. A lot of people don't want to do that as practitioners. Oh, they don't want to change their diet. Well, you tell them the choice. Change your diet or lose your legs. Change your diet or go blind. Change your diet or have a heart attack. And you're going to recreate a nicer way to say it. But the truth of the matter is, that's the reality. How do we restore sense insulin sensitivity and get people back to metabolic health? The 30-day metabolic reset. Make sure you learn as much as you can about doing that. Listen to my other podcasts, but also join us in our insulin resistance practitioner training or send your people to the Sweet Spot Solution program or learn how to do a program like the Sweet Spot Solution to guide people through this 30-day metabolic reset. And we have to get their balanced nutrition, consistent movement, low stress, restful sleep, and optimal timing and rhythms. How, How much is timing between meals? So we need to get them on a new food pyramid that focuses on fresh, whole, low glycemic foods. And the food doesn't have to be boring. The food can be very exciting. And we've got recipes that you have access to when you join us for our insulin resistance or sweet spot programs, but they can do desserts still. It's just how do we put the desserts together? And are we measuring to make sure the desserts work with them? Okay. So the metabolic sweet spot, this this is what we're talking about today. We want to make sure that you understand how to work with this, because if you don't, you're missing the boat and you can leave a lot of people suffering and possibly even dying as a result. I focus on helping people to go in a low glycemic diet for 30 days straight, get rid of the junk, get rid of the sugar, get rid of the carbs, get rid of anything that causes their sugar to jump. After doing that for 30 days, we can reset the insulin receptors doesn't mean at the end of 30 days, they go back to Cheetos and Kool-Aid and and soft drinks and all that. It means that they're able to then tolerate more of the healthy foods that were causing them to go up before, like, you know, 
fruits. I first started testing for me. I found that blueberries raised my blood sugar. I got up to 135 after eating blueberries. That's crazy. Blueberries are supposed to lower your blood sugar. So everybody's different. You have to help them. You have to help them get into a mild state of ketosis. And you can do that with this, this metabolic reset. So many people have had so many great results. So learn how to do a metabolic reset and teach them how to know when they're out of their sweet spot. And what it might be is that when they're out of their sweet spot, they're hungrier, they have extra belly fat, they have low energy after meals. Uh, they're, they're craving sweets after even a full meal. They have that three o'clock slump. Did you ever hear people talk about that? It's not normal. They'll say, oh, I have that normal three o'clock slump. No, that's a sign of insulin resistance and even adrenal burnout. They have difficulty focusing and they're cranky and irritable. So if, they, if they've gotten better, and they've fallen out of their sweet spot, these are going to be more noticeable. So learn how to do this. Learn how to do a 30-day metabolic reset. We've had people who have gone and lost 110 pounds in doing this. I have people who are full-blown diabetic with 180 fasting glucose, and they refuse to go on medication. Within two, three weeks, they're down below 100. It happens. It happens all the time. And you can be the hero. I have one person who she does that. She still gets on all my webinars and she'll say, ah, Dr. Rita Marie is our miracle worker. That's what we refer to her as in our, in our household. So you have a choice. You can teach people how to age gracefully or age normally, like what it's expected to be. You can you know, get, have them have low energy or you can teach them how to have high energy. And the choice is theirs. They get to choose. They can cross their fingers and hope for the best, or they can undertake a 30-day metabolic reset and take action to turn this around. And you have the power to help them. You have the power to do this because they're not going to hear it from their endocrinologist or their anybody, anybody in their medical field. So learn to do this. Learn about the Sweet Spot Solution. We'll have links in the show notes page of resources that you can use to go deeper with this. So the kinds of things that you'll have in the show notes, you'll have a link to the Sweet Spot Solution. I'll put a link to the metabolic quiz so you can use that with your people. There's a gift that we put together about fasting and how you can help people with the power of fasting to get metabolism under control. We have our insulin resistance practitioner training. So there's a lot, a lot of resources that you have available to you to go deeper with this and become the expert that actually helps people to get well. And to explore more of our resources, www.inemethod.com, where we talk about all of our practitioner training programs to help you get up to speed if you've been conventionally trained, to get you deeper if you've been trained in nutrition, but kind of on a superficial level, we want to be there to support you. So go ahead and get out there and help people. And until next time, shine on. Thanks for listening to Reinvent Healthcare. We are part of the movement to change healthcare for the better. If you liked this episode, leave a rating and a review. And for more resources to support you in growing a thriving and fulfilling practice, visit our website at inemethod.com.